Yes. You'll forgive me if it takes me a minute to get going here. It's been a long time uh, since we brought two toddlers to church. <laughs> a long time. So uh, we are at our uh, second sermon in our sermon series of taking a look at a few Christmas carols and the themes that are found within. As I'm sure you can imagine, uh, it is difficult just to pick three carols to use. Um, There are so many great carols, and uh, we all have our favorite carols, don't we? And we all have those carols that we could do without. Or maybe you don't. (laughs) Some of us do. Uh, As some of you know, uh, one of those for me, one of my least favorite Christmas carols, uh, the one that I could do without is Away in a Manger. Uh, The reason for this is that I do not think it is especially helpful to sing The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, the reason I'm not especially fond of that line, and and so not fond of the carol, is that it, it could, and I repeat, could minimize the hypostatic union. Wasn't that what you were all thinking? The hypostatic union. Uh, One theological dictionary defines it as such. The miraculous bringing together of humanity and divinity in the same person, Jesus Christ, such that he is both fully divine and fully union. The hypostatic union. So the doctrine of the hypostatic union states that when the Son of God took on flesh, he remained truly God. He did not cease to be God. He remained truly God and also became truly man. He was both God and man. Now, the line, you know, it makes for a good rhyme, but I'm not sure how accurate it is to say that Jesus never cried. So uh, I think it probably would have been better to leave that line out or, or put something else in there. Another carol, which adds some details which are not found in Scripture, is actually one of my favorites, musically anyway. Uh, I love the, the carols in the minor chords. That is, We Three Kings. You can read through Matthew, Matthew 2 as many times as you like, but you will not find anywhere where it mentions that there were three kings. Furthermore, you will not find anywhere that says that they were, in fact, kings. The word is actually magi, which is most, most uh, accurately translated as, as wise men of some kind, philosophers, maybe. I mean, were there uh, three of them? Maybe, uh, because there's three gifts that are mentioned. Were they kings? Maybe, uh, but neither of these two details are found in Scripture. And so, again, in my opinion, it would probably be best to leave it out. I mean, leave it out from the, the, the carol. I don't mean leave that carol out. Um, which brings us to our hymn for today, one of the world's most best-loved carols. Uh, Hark the herald angels sing. Now, before I get to uh, the issue with this carol, um, I just want to make something very clear. I, I do not raise these issues to suggest that we shouldn't sing these carols. That's not what I'm saying at all. That should be relatively uh, evident because we do sing these carols. I just want us to come to these carols with our eyes wide open to know what it is that we are singing. Um, after all, really, many of the such issues that I mentioned today uh, or have mentioned, uh, they're really, they're not that big of a deal. The, 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 the songwriters maybe just took a few liberties, maybe they shouldn't have but not a big deal. So this brings us to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which we're going to look to Luke chapter 2. And uh, what we're going to find out is that it's not actually entirely accurate because 
the angels actually did not sing what they said. They said what they said. You will hear there and see here that there is no mention of uh, angels singing. Now, uh, before we get to that, let's uh, do a little look back through history uh, to see where this carol came from, what its origin uh, is. If you remember last week, we looked at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and its origin story was really quite interesting. It went very far back. Um, When it comes to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, uh, there's no uh, debate or controversy about where it comes from, but it does have a very interesting developmental story. As you may know, it was written by one of the most prolific hymn writers in all of church history, namely Charles Wesley, who is brother of John Wesley, from whom came two denominations, namely the Methodists and the Wesleyans. Um, there is some debate concerning exactly how many hymns that, uh, that uh, Wesley wrote, but uh, amongst his biographers, we come up with it was somewhere between 6,000 and 9,000, which is to say the low number is 6,000. So he wrote a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of hymns. As one biographer reports, he wrote 56 volumes of hymns in 53 years, more volumes than, than years. Now, Hark the Herald was, in fact, one of his earliest works. It was written in 1737, but it was not actually Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In fact, when Wesley first wrote it as a poem, uh, the first two lines were originally, Hark how all the welkin rings, glory to the King of Kings. This is how he wrote it. This is how he intended it to be. Now, you might be asking yourself, what is a welkin? A welkin uh, is an old English word which refers to the sky, all that is above, the heavens. So uh, the the lyric would be saying, uh, hark how all the heavens ring, glory to the king of kings. Now, you you say, what what happened? How did it become what we have today? Well, this is where things get interesting. The change in lyrics to what we sing today came sometime between when Wesley, Wesley wrote the original edition uh, and when a, a edition of the volume it was in was published 20 years later, uh, so somewhere between when it was written and 20 years later, it was changed, in fact, by a friend of the Wesleys named George Whitfield, who was the best-known frenemy of Charles's brother, John. Now, when it comes to theology, uh, I definitely side with Whitfield, who is one of history's most famous Calvinist preachers. But when it comes to this song, I, in fact, like Wesley's uh, opening line better because it did not inc- uh, include the error concerning the the uh, angels singing. It says, hark how all the welkins ring. And I like the reference to Jesus as king of kings because we don't ever see him referred to as the newborn king. And of course he was, but uh, I, I think I like Wesley's version better. Maybe we'll have to sing it sometime. Nevertheless, uh, as for the tune which we sing it to, uh, which you have to admit is a musical masterpiece, Uh, It was not written until half a decade after Wesley uh, was dead and gone. It was written by a German composer named Felix Mendelssohn. Now, the context of the composition of the tune is also very interesting, but I will leave that uh, for another time. I have had uh, a lot of fun researching these carols for these uh, sermons. Uh, For now, we need to get to the topic uh, of the, the song, which is the topic of this sermon found in the opening line. The topic is reconciliation. So the first part of the first verse says, Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So we'll spend a good amount of our time this morning in that famous 
uh, Christmas text, uh, Luke chapter 2. And then we will look to a few verses from uh, Paul in his epistles that will narrow in on the theme of the carol. So we will look at the story, we will look at the saying, and we will look at the significance of it all. The story, the saying, and the significance of it all as we make some applications concerning reconciliation. So before we get to what the angel said, we need to know the background, the story in which this saying is found. What was going on when these uh, angels heralded forth uh, with their, what they had to say. So last week, you'll remember, we spent some time in the greater context, that is, the, the, the sending of the Son by the Father, uh, God taking on flesh and becoming a man by the power of the Spirit. This morning, we're going to zoom in and actually look at what was happening on earth. We will look at the birth narrative. And while last week we were in one of the two most famous texts uh, for Christmas, uh, this week we'll be in the other one, which is Luke chapter 2. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and, uh, and you know, we could look even further back. Luke starts his nativity story with the birth of John the Baptist and the visit of Gabriel to Mary and a few other special events, uh, but for our purpose this morning, the context which we are going to consider in more detail starts with a census. This is Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Let's actually read through to verse 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So this is the context in which Joseph travels to Uh, Bethlehem, a a census. And what made this trip so significant uh, was that uh, Mary, Joseph's bride, was with child. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this at all, because over 700 years before this child would be born, Micah prophesied these words. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So, so Micah knew that Jesus was going to come out of Bethlehem. But uh, at the time when Mary was ready to give birth to Jesus, they were in Nazareth. And so uh, here comes this census that Caesar Augustus uh, ordered. And uh, it's important that we understand that this census was for the purpose of ensuring that nobody in the area escaped taxation. Right? Everybody loves taxation. And uh, especially leaders love taxation. And Caesar Augustus wanted to make sure that he got what was his due. uh, And so he ordered this census. But of course, God had a much more important purpose for this trip to Bethlehem than taxation. It was to get Mary and Joseph to this place to fulfill the prophecy that was made by Micah. And isn't it interesting that God uses world rulers, even wicked world rulers, to get his way? The word of God tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Man, isn't that a comforting, comforting thought? In a country with wicked rulers, it's good to know that God turns their hearts wherever he wills. So Caesar Augustus, his motive was greed. And what's so fascinating is he didn't even know 
that God, in fact, used him to ensure that his perfect will would be accomplished, that Mary and Joseph would travel to Bethlehem where Jesus would be born. Now, likely, because of the census, they had a hard time finding somewhere to lodge, which wouldn't have been such a big deal, except in verse 6, we read, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the the inn. It was then in the most unassuming place and in the most humble of circumstances that Mary's firstborn son was delivered. It was almost as though if you weren't paying attention, which the the vast majority of the rest of the world was not paying attention, that you you could miss it. But then Luke tells us about some men who would not miss it. And these men were no men of stature, no men of importance, not by the world's standards. They were simply shepherds. And we read in verse 8 of Luke chapter 2, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. And guess what they were doing? They were doing what shepherds do. They were keeping watch over their flocks by night. Basically, they're just minding their own business, doing their job as though this was a day like any other day, except this was not a day like any other day for these shepherds because God sent a messenger to them with news of no inconsequential import. And I want you to notice how they respond to this visit from an angel because it indicates something that I have noted many times in the past, and it is how off-base the modern-day understanding of angels is. You see, Luke tells us here that uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Now, I assure you, no chubby baby with a halo and wings is going to elicit fear in the hearts of men. But these men experienced fear as they beheld the glory of God. Now, the angels don't intend for them to be fearful. And so we read in verse 10, And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Isn't it interesting that the announcement of the coming of Christ, the first coming of Christ, the announcement of the incarnation, the announcement of the birth of the savior, the announcement of the good news is first made to shepherds shepherds, lowly shepherds living in the city of David, who in fact also got his start as a shepherd. The arrival of the good shepherd, first made known to shepherds in the city named after one of Israel's most famous shepherds. Isn't that interesting? And what were they to do with this good news that they received? They were to find the one who is Christ the Lord. The question is, is how are they going to do it? How will they know who is the Savior? Well, the, angels, uh, the angel gives them some important information in verse 12. He says, and this will be a sign for you. In other words, this is how you will know. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Now, because Jesus was laid in a manger or a feeding trough for animals, uh, we assume often that he was born in a stable or a barn. That is possible. But that is not certain. It may have been that he was born in a cave. It could also mean that he was born in a cave, or it could even mean that he was born out back behind an inn. 
Uh, but what we do know is that there was no room for, for him in an inn. There was no room for him. It could also be translated as a guest room in somebody's house. The point is, is that there was nowhere in a regular structure that they would be expected to stay for them to stay. So they were lay, uh, Jesus was laid in a manger, and, uh, and then uh, the, this led the shepherds to go to Bethlehem to see the Savior in a manger. They then shared the good news of Jesus' birth. But before they did that, Something else happened. That is the emphasis of this sermon. That is the emphasis of the, the, the hymn, Hark the Herald. So after the angel delivered the message to the shepherds, but before they went to see Jesus in the manger, we then read in verse 13. This happened. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Now, you know, it's possible that we uh, think that this host of angels was singing because if you notice there, it says they were praising God. Oh, they were praising God. And of course, so often we associate worship with singing, right? We'll say, oh, the worship time was very encouraging this morning, which is not really the best way to use the word because it indicates that just... Singing is worship and everything else is not worship. Uh, But that might be why we think that they were singing, because it says that they were praising. But of course, that doesn't necessarily mean they were singing. Now, of course, we do worship through song, but worship is much bigger than that. Interestingly enough, as well, after the shepherds see Jesus, when they return to the fields where they were shepherding, the same word is used for what they do. They, they glorified and praised God. So the angels praised God and the shepherds praised God. But nobody says that the shepherds were singing. We just say that the angels were singing. But no, they were praising God, which is to say they were affirming the greatness of God. That is what it is to praise God. They were acknowledging his worthiness of all worship. That is praising God. They were ascribing all glory and majesty to him. They were rejoicing in the good news of the birth of the Savior, which is exactly what the angels were doing when they said glory to God in the highest. That is a statement of worship and of the utmost worship. The miracle of all miracles had taken place. God had become man. God would dwell among us. Jesus was born and laid in a manger, and the good news of the Savior was announced to the shepherd, and the heavens erupted with praise to God. Now, after giving glory to God in heaven, then we get to the the theme of this sermon. Uh, uh, Then, after declaring glory to God, they then declared what this meant for us earth dwellers. And namely, they said, peace, peace. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. It it is the second half of this refrain uh, of the angels, which I believe led Wesley to pen these words. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Unlike the justice and wrath of God, which demonstrates his righteousness, God's mercy demonstrates his gentleness and his kindness, or as Wesley put it in his famous carol, his mercy, which is mild. Now, as for uh, what uh, mercy is, uh, well, mercy is the reason for which uh, God and sinners can be reconciled. Apart from God's mercy, God and sinners cannot be reconciled. They can only remain at, at war with no peace. You see, through Christ's birth, God brings peace to the earth, which is to say he brings, brings peace between God and man. But that peace 100% absolutely depends on his 
mercy. Without the mercy of God, all we have to look forward to is what we deserve, which is his wrath and his justice for all of eternity. But with his mercy, we can avoid what we deserve, and instead we can receive what we don't deserve by God's grace, which is reconciliation. And this brings us to the last portion of our sermon, a consideration of reconciliation and how this important doctrine should be applied. So turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 5. So we know the, the story, uh, we know the saying that the angels heralded. Uh, now let's consider the significance of this all. Let's think for a few moments about reconciliation. And as we look to Romans 5, I want us to note a number of important things that we need to know about reconciliation. We're going to narrow in on verse 10, but before we do that, we're going to consider some verses uh, surrounding it. We'll look at some context. The first thing we need to recognize is how we all came to be in need of reconciliation. This is the question you need to ask. Why is it that all human beings need to be reconciled? Aren't there some humans that are so good they don't have to be reconciled? No, no, there are no innocent people. Instead, we all need reconciliation. And the reason we see is in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is what we refer to as original sin, uh, or as one theological dictionary defines it, the state of alienation from God into which all humans are born. Okay, hear that again. The state of alienation from God into which all humans are born. So what we see here is that the reason why we are born alienated from God and in need of reconciliation is because of the the first Adam. Adam, our federal head. He stood in for us in the garden. So Adam was put in the garden. He he was told not to eat of the one tree. and, And he was acting on our behalf. And whatever happens to him happens to us. And if you think that's unfair, we'll just consider that Jesus also stood in as our federal head. And whatever happened to him happens to us. So you can't have one without the other. But it all began with the first Adam who was put in the garden and told to obey God and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he failed and he failed miserably. And because he stood in as uh, for us, we now are counted with the the guilt and the sin that he uh, experienced. And, and so it's our connection with Adam that makes us in need of reconciliation. So if you are a human being, then you are in need of reconciliation. If you are a descendant from Adam, which is to say all people, then, then you, you need reconciliation. So why do we need reconciliation? Because of Adam and our connection with him. Now, the second thing we learn about reconciliation, uh, besides where the need came from, is that we learn that we cannot reconcile ourselves. And isn't that hard to deal with? Don't you find it hard when you are uh, at war with another human being, right? When, and when a relationship is broken and you want everything in your power to reconcile to that person. But sometimes you can't reconcile to them because they don't want to be reconciled to you. You have to remain at war with them. Uh, when it comes to uh, our relationship with God, The reality is that no matter how much you want to reconcile, no matter how hard you work to reconcile yourself to God, no matter how many good deeds you do, no matter how many good things you say, 
no matter you know, all the good works that you could do, you can never reconcile yourself to God. He has to reconcile us to himself. We cannot do it. Paul says here in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak, which is to say while we were helpless, while we were poor, while we could not do it, we did not have the strength, we did not have the ability to reconcile ourselves to God. We cannot do it. We need someone to reconcile us. And that, of course, is what God does. Before we get to that, we know where the need for reconciliation comes from, but why is reconciliation necessary? Well, Paul, in fact, says three things about all people born of Adam. In verse 6, he says that we are ungodly. In verse 8, he says that we are sinners. And in verse 10, he says that we are enemies of God. This is the term that we need to narrow in on. Enemies of God. Enemies need to be reconciled. And Paul says that that is what we are. We are enemies. See, the good news is not good if we don't understand the bad news. The bad news is that we do not do what pleases God. We are ungodly. We might think we do what pleases God. We might feel like the things we do please God because, I mean, you know, they're good things that we do. But apart from God... Even the good things we do are done with the wrong motive. So they're not, in fact, good things. So what Paul says is every human being comes into this world in such a way that they do not please God by what they do. He also says that, that what we do is, in fact, uh, disobey. We are disobedient. We are sinners. We violate the commandments of God. And so we are counted as enemies by God, which is to say we need reconciled to God because we are his enemies. And because we are enemies of God worthy of his wrath, we need God to make peace between us and himself. And he did that. Paul says here in verse 10, this is what we're getting to, Romans 5, verse 10. He says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the last thing Paul tells us is how reconciliation is accomplished. And if you know the sinfulness of your own heart, then, then, then you know uh, the significance of how our reconciliation is accomplished, what God did so that we could be at peace with him. And it is quite simply that he sent his son to take our sins upon himself and willingly go to the cross where he received the wrath of God due to us and died the death that we deserved. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He took our place. He stood in for us and succeeded where Adam failed. He lived a perfect life. And then he died a sacrificial death for us. And now we receive his righteousness and our sins are forgiven by his shed blood on the cross. So though it's not mentioned explicitly by Paul, he, he does reference the death of Christ and he does reference the resurrection of Christ, which implies that if Jesus were to die, then he would have to be born, which is to say this text must, must in some uh, respect imply the incarnation. So Christmas then is a time to remember reconciliation. If you have been reconciled, then the Christmas season, season should cause you to remember the great doctrine of reconciliation and a number of things about it that we all need it because we're all born sinners that we who trust in christ receive it because of the mercy of god we receive it from god 
We should remember that we are reconciled and made at peace with God through Christ. This is what we ought to remember, that reconciliation refers to the peace that we experience with God, right? Peace on earth and mercy mild. And we should also remember that without the incarnation, there would have been no crucifixion and no resurrection, which is to say, if it were not for the birth of Christ, there would be no death of Christ and no raising of Christ and no defeat of death. So Christmas is all about reconciliation. Christmas is about peace. But it's about true peace, not temporary peace, and not just a measure of peace, right? The world experiences temporary peace, and they experience a measure of peace, but they do not experience true and everlasting peace, peace peace which surpasses all understanding. It is because the Son of God took on flesh and was born and laid in a manger, It is because he lived a perfect life as both very man and very God, because he then reconciled himself through his death and resurrection. He reconciled us to himself. And for that reason, and only for that reason, that we can have peace here on earth. Now, once again, back in Romans chapter 5, we are reminded that Christmas is a time of rejoicing because if Christmas is a time to think on the reconciliation, then after what Paul says about reconciliation, he then says in verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So last week, we considered how the incarnation is cause for rejoicing. This week, we consider that the reason for the incarnation, which is reconciliation, is also reason for rejoicing, because we have peace with God through Christ, the King of Kings. But, you know, there is something else that thinking about Christmas and the Incarnation should do besides make us rejoice, and that it should make us long for others to experience that same kind of joy. But for that to be necessary, they must receive reconciliation. So for that, we're going to go to uh, 2 Corinthians So just turn over a few pages to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, we read this. Paul says to the church in Corinth, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you. Right? We, we don't ask you nicely. We don't suggest. We don't, you know, send you a, a nice little meme asking you this. No, we implore you, he says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what Paul is saying here is that he was sent by Christ on behalf of Christ to preach Christ so that people would be reconciled to God through Christ. Let me say that again. Paul is saying that he was sent by Christ on behalf of Christ to preach Christ so that people would be reconciled to Christ. And while we weren't sent in the same exact way as Paul, we were reconciled to God through Christ like Paul was. And thus, we have been entrusted with the same message that Paul was entrusted with, the message of reconciliation. And it's our responsibility and privilege to preach that message. We must tell people about reconciliation because all people need reconciliation, which means you're going to have to tell people that they're sinners and enemies of God. 
We must tell them what God has done to reconcile, that he sent his son to take the sin of the wicked upon himself and impute his righteousness to them. And we must call them to come to Christ. That's what it is to tell people to be reconciled to God. It is to say, come to Christ, trust in him as Savior and Lord, so you will be reconciled and experience true peace. And what better of a time is there to do that than right now? Christmas time. Whether in movies like It's a Wonderful Life or on the loudspeakers at the mall as they go shopping or even uh, from the speakers in their own car as they listen to, to secular radio stations, they are hearing the famous words of Charles Wesley. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. They're hearing this. What a great opportunity to strike up a conversation about that carol. And a conversation thus about reconciliation. You can tell them about the peace of God demonstrated through the birth of Christ. You can tell them about the mercy of God demonstrated through the death of Christ. You can tell them about the glory of God demonstrated through victory over sin and death. The resurrection. And then you can tell them the good news of Christmas. That they can be reconciled to God. And that they should be reconciled to God if they will only come to Christ and trust in him as the one who was born and lived a perfect life, the one who died for sinners and the one who rose to give them life. My encouragement to you this, this year, this Christmas, is if you have been reconciled to God, think on that reconciliation. But also, if you have been reconciled to God, do not keep the message of reconciliation to yourself. Rather, take the time to rejoice in the peace you have with God and then take this glorious opportunity where people can't help but think of the incarnation, whether they know the word or not, and tell them about the message of the angels. Tell them what they said, not sung. Don't worry about telling them the difference, but tell them about what they said, about the reason for the incarnation. Tell them about reconciliation. So I I just want to return briefly to where I began I want to repeat something I already said, and it's this. The last thing that I want to suggest or even imply, please hear me, I I do not bring up these issues in Christmas carols to suggest that we should not sing them. Like I said, that should be pretty evident because we sing all of these Christmas carols here, except you might notice Away in the Manger doesn't really make its way in, but there's other reasons for that. But, but I, I don't want to suggest that we shouldn't sing these songs. Instead, I just think it's very important to think about what we sing, not to just sing it without even thinking about it. Uh, the reason that we sing these songs is to help us think on the incarnation. The reason that we think any song, uh, sing any song in this place is to help us think on what the scriptures say and about theology, about about God. That is the purpose. And if that's going to be the case, then we're going to have to think about these things. And so if I have to encourage you to look for mistakes in carols, uh, I will do that if it will mean that you will pay closer attention to the lyrics that we sing, because this is what I want. Uh, And, you know, let me also say this. Uh, In many cases, the issues in these carols could even be reconciled if we understood them in a different way. Now, I, I choose to read words for what they say, but it could be that when we say, oh, away in a manger, da, 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 no crying he makes, maybe it just meant no crying he made at that very moment. 
I mean, it could have meant that. I think you could have said it differently, but you could say, look, I'm not saying when I sing that song that he never cried. I'm just saying, you know, when, I, when they looked down, there were the animals, if in fact there were animals around them. Again, not mentioned in scripture. But, you know, it, it could be okay. Or even, uh, you know, uh, Wesley's uh, song and the, the change of lyric that Whitfield made. It could mean, and, and I think maybe this is what it did mean, is that he was using... Um, sing as a metaphor. So, you know, if the, if the heavens erupt in praise to God, it's as though they're singing, right? Which, which could mean what he meant. Well, you know, either way, I, I'm not too concerned. So just, I, I don't want you to think I, I'm, a, I'm a Grinch. <laughs> I, I have had some Grinch years in my past. Don't ask Diana about those. But I'm not a Grinch anymore. I have been delivered from my Grinchiness. I do not bring these issues to your attention Again, because we should not sing these songs. I bring these up to encourage you to think about what we sing or think about what you hear when you're enjoying these beloved carols. Some of you even as far back as like November. I, I think that's crazy, but you know, all power to you. Listen to them all year round. I mean, it's all good. But just think about what you hear. I mean, I, I trust that these songs that we've talked about and all songs that we sing here at Gospel Light have rich theological meaning. And I hope that as we sing them now and in the years to come, they will bring to mind the biblical themes that we have discussed. So I hope that when you think about, uh, uh, when you sing the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that you can't help but meditate on the incarnation. You know, think about what the word Emmanuel means when you sing it. I pray that we will think about what we sing when we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, so you can't help but be encouraged by the doctrine of reconciliation. And as we will see next week, I pray that when we sing the song Joy to the World, we won't be able to contain our joy and instead we'll burst out in celebration. Let's pray.